short story, me and Brooklyn, we went to Colorado. It was three years ago. Uh, we were hiking around. This is our first time in the mountains. We're with my cousin Erica. She's taking on this beautiful trip. It's actually a loop. So there's a parking lot. You do this really big loop around. It's like five, six miles or something. Not too bad. But we get about halfway, and it's a beautiful day. Like, it's June. In Oklahoma, it's hot. In Colorado, it's warm. It's beautiful. It's sunny. We're in shorts and T-shirts. It is It's amazing. Like, this is perfect weather. You're not too hot. You're not cold at all. Um, and then we get to the very end or the other side of the trail to where it's like you have to go all the way back or you just finish the loop around. And then a, a storm cloud's coming through. And then my, my cousin Erica's like, oh, no. I'm like, What? It's like, that's a storm cloud. I'm like, I know. I'm from Oklahoma. I know what a cloud looks like. It's like, no, you don't understand. Lightning kills more people in the mountains than bears. Like, if, um, if a storm comes and there's lightning and thunder, and if my husband finds out he's going to kill me that I brought you guys out here in a lightning storm, we're like, oh, no. What are we going to do? And I look on my map, so I pull out my GPS. I'm like, I think there's a trail that takes us through the mountain instead of around the mountain. And so we went through... We, I don't know, we just started walking. I'm just following my GPS thing. There's not a trail in front of us, so we're just walking through a forest. Before we know it, we are in Narnia. Like, you know that part of Narnia where they go into that wardrobe and they come out through the clothes and there it's snowy and all that kind of stuff? That's what happened. We were on dry ground. Next thing you know, we're stepping through five feet of snow. Every step we're taking, I'm stepping in waist deep. I'm like, where in the world are we? In a shorts and t-shirt, yes. And I'm pretty sure at one point it started snowing on us. I'm like, it's 70. Why is it snowing? Like that kind of thing. And for a moment, we felt hopeless because there was bears out there. We're like, okay, bears can kill you. That's crazy. She's like, no, what you need to be worried about is the mountain lions. You won't know if there's a mountain lion until it's already attacking you. Mountain lions, they come in like, they're just coming like a cheetah, you know, like just out of nowhere. And so... We were actually pretty scared for a moment. At one point, Brooklyn slips into this icy river. Um, her feet are wet, and we're just almost on the verge of crying. We make it out. We get to the other side, and everything is, is fine. No, no uh, mountain lions, no bears. We survived. What's so funny? Okay, we're going to let her do her thing. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, go ahead and open up and go to that verse. Uh, we're going to be reading verses 12, 11 through 12, but we're going to go all the way to 22 today. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised, but those called the circumcised. This is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. So here it's really important to understand that Paul, he is really coming down to the difference between Jews and Gentiles. We don't use those words a lot, between Jews and Gentiles, but there was a huge difference. They didn't like each other. The Jews were the promised people of God. They were the nation of Israel. They were God's chosen people. And the Gentiles were just everybody else that wasn't a Jew. Like that's how the Jews saw the world. There was Jews and not Jews. So that's how much they didn't like the not Jews. They called them Gentiles. And so Paul, he's writing to the Gentiles. He says, you Gentiles used to be outside of this relationship. And so Paul, he's reminding the Gentiles what their life was like before Christ. Because before Jesus, the, the whole Old Testament was written to Jews. It was written about how God was coming in to save the world, but through his chosen people, the Jewish people. And so before that, the Jew, or the, the Gentiles, they had no hope. They had nowhere to look. And that's what he's trying to remind them. 
Paul, he's reminding the Gentiles what their life was like before Christ. So with, before Christ, they were without Jesus. They were excluded from the citizenship. They were foreigners of the covenant of promise, and they were without hope and without God in the world. That's how Paul describes it. Basically, they had no hope to look forward to. The Gentiles before Jesus came, like, they had no like, idea about a Savior coming to save them from their sins. They had no idea about how there's a heaven and a hell. They had no idea that somebody needed to come and save them. The Gentiles, they were without hope in the world. They were without God. And we know that without God, it is all hopeless. How many of you have ever felt hopeless before? Maybe not in a, a hiking situation, but maybe personally inside. Maybe you felt excluded. Maybe you feel like there was at one point you had no home. Maybe you feel like that you were without hope. Maybe you feel like you are far away from God. Or maybe you come here tonight and you are actually far away from God and you know it. Paul continues in verse 13. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away had been brought near by the blood of Christ who made both groups one, and he tore down the, the dividing wall of hostility in the flesh. Or in his flesh, he made of no effect of the law, consisting of the commands, and expressed in the regulations, so that he might create himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. And so in this, the first thing that we see, that God is making two groups into one. He's making two people who used to be enemies, he's making them into one group. He says, now you guys have this in common. And so he knows what, Paul's reminding the Gentiles what your life was like before Christ. You were without hope. You were excluded from God. You had no promise to look forward to. He says, but now in Christ, living in Christ, you are brought near to God. You are no longer excluded as foreigners. You are no longer without hope because we are near to God. And the same thing is true for us tonight. Whenever you feel like you were without hope, you feel like you had no home, you had nowhere to go, nothing to look forward to, we are now near to God. Throughout the Bible, we see that the best thing imaginable, which is literally the biblical definition of heaven, and the worst thing imaginable, which is the definition of hell from the Bible, they both stem from the exact same thing. And if you, ha- if you have this thing, it's literally heaven. And if you don't have this thing, it's hell. Do you guys, guys want to know what that thing is? This is not a pop quiz. It's the presence of God. It's Jesus, but it's the presence of God. Everywhere from the very first page, it's, it's having a relationship with God. It's the presence of God. From the very first page of the Bible to the very last chapter of the Bible and everything in between, it talks about the importance of having a, a, a relationship with God. And uh, the best thing imaginable is being in that relationship, having the presence of God. And the worst thing possible was to be excluded from a relationship with God. And that's important for us, but let's look back into the very first chapter and the last chapters of the Bible. In the first couple chapters of the Bible, the, Adam and Eve, they're in the Garden of Eden. It says God, he, he created a paradise and had everything they need. The, the coolest thing about that, though, is that God was walking with them in the Garden. It says God was walking with them in the cool of the day. God was with them. They had everything they needed, not just because they were in a garden with unlimited food, but because God was with them. And we know what happens whenever they sin. God banishes them from his presence. So they went from the best thing imaginable, which is literally heaven on earth, to the worst thing imaginable, being banished from 
the presence of God. And so that's what the whole story of the Bible is about, is about how we get back into where we need to be, which is in God's presence, until you get to the last three chapters of the book of Revelation. And where, where is everybody at? They are back in the Garden of Eden. Whenever you read the last two chapters of, of the book of Revelation, that is literally describing Eden in the future of what it, we're going to be, where we're going to be in it. The main pr- presence of that is that we are in the presence of God. So what Paul he, was writing here, um, he was saying something that was impossible. He's saying that Gentiles, those who are not Jews, those, everyone else, those who are outside of God's family, have been brought near to God because of Jesus. So Jesus, he became our peace. The Bible over and over again, it says before Christ, we were God's enemies. And maybe it's not by choice. Like maybe you didn't just wake up one day. I'm like, I'm going to be an enemy of God. But whenever we don't live in Jesus, that's our natural way of living as as an enemy of God. And this is not something to take lightly. Whenever you... Let me say it clearly. Whenever we are not living in a relationship with Jesus, we are God's enemy. And it's as simple as that. James chapter 4, 4, it says that if you are a friend of the world, and we know the world is living in a way that's not in the way of Jesus, it says you are God's enemy. We are dead in our sins. Living a life that does what the flesh wants. And we know the flesh, that is a word that describes the animalistic drive, that, that sinful nature that's inside every single one of us. When we live according to that, we become God's enemies. But Jesus died in our place. He became our peace. So that means whenever we were enemies of God, Jesus died in our place. He bridged that gap to where there is no more gap between us and God. That is the gospel message, that Jesus died in our place. And because of that, we are no longer enemies of God, but instead we are brought near to God by his blood. And that's so important. It sounds weird. Like I know it, it kind of fits in with the theme of the spiders and the webs and the force and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but the blood of Jesus, that's not something to be scared about. And it's not something to take lightly. The blood of Jesus just implies that somebody died Literally, Jesus died in our place. It means a sacrifice happened in our place. The death that we deserve so that we can be brought near to God. And because of that, we can have peace with God. That means we're no longer enemies. It means that we can go into God's presence free of charge. We can go into God's presence. But it also means that we get peace from God. Whenever we reread this chapter in verses 11 through 12, the word peace actually happens five different times. Peace is important. And it's more than just lack of conflict. Like we don't have conflict with God anymore. But whenever we receive the peace of God, that, is, that means we are becoming whole on the inside. It means everything that you need is now there. Like think about whenever we get peace from God, think about like a pie. Like whenever you take a, a piece out of the pie, that pie is not whole anymore. Thanksgiving's coming up. And let me tell you, if you take a piece out of my pie, I'm going to know something's wrong. Something's missing. Something's not right. Like there's a piece out of my pie and I don't know where it is and how to find it. And so many times we're trying to fill that piece in so that we can have a whole pie. Okay, this is getting a little ridiculous. But we try to put something in there that fits and it never works. But God, he comes in and he makes it whole and complete to where we know it's not lacking anything. The same thing happened in our life. Peace from God is more than just lack of conflict. It's a wholeness. It's a completeness. It means everything is finally at rest. I have everything I need. 
that only comes from God and God alone. And because of that, because Jesus is our peace, God expects us to have peace with one another, with everybody who, who is a Christian, with everybody that is around us. God expects us to have peace and unity. Because here's what he says in verse 16 through 18. So he did this. Remember, he died in our place. He, he brought us back to God. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God, remember the Jews and the Gentiles, in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to, in one spirit to the Father. So there's that word peace again. It appears two more times. In Christ... God is bringing together unlikely groups of people. So here specifically, he's bringing in two opposite groups, two groups that couldn't be more opposed. There were the Jews who followed God, who, who did all the rules. They followed God, all the laws. And then there's the Gentiles, those who were pagans. They were atheists. They worshiped many gods. They did weird things. They had cults and all that kind of stuff. God is bringing those two people together under one single cause, and that is equal access to him. So God is in the process of bringing unlikely people together and expecting them to get along. And more than that, that is a principle. Today, what God likes to do, he likes bringing everybody together under one cause. Like if you are a, a Christian, then we are expected to have unity and peace with each other. So in Paul's day, the major update was Jews and Gentiles. Today, it's having liberals and conservatives in the same church agreeing on one thing, and that is Jesus. For the youth group, that's like having that, the kids who grew up in church, who followed all the rules, who, who do all the reading plans, um, have to get along with a kid who grew up as an atheist and bullied people in school, and they finally come to, to hope in Jesus, and now they have to get along. It's the same thing as a band kid and a football player, or OU fans and OSU fans, or Cowboys fans and, and Eagles fans. Like God is expecting everybody to get together and put aside their differences for one cause, and that is Jesus. People from every background and race and political party and anything that we create that divides us. Remember, everything that divides us is something that we create. That's not the way God created it in the Garden of Eden. It happens because we made it. Everything that divides us, God brings those people together. That is a main theme in the Bible. It's called unity. You see that all throughout the New Testament. Everybody did something with one another. Everyone was always together. It's a being of one mind. It's putting aside differences. And it's pursuing Christ and his mission together. That's what God loves to do. That is a theme in the Bible is bringing people together for one mission. In our church, the, the mission of the church the mission of this youth group, the mission of this church, the mission of the church as a whole is the most important mission that there is in the entire world because it is of eternal significance. You can, do, you can work for a job. You can do things for school. You can do things for your support. Those things will last for a moment, and then it won't matter. What we do as Christians, what we do as a church, it matters for eternity. And it means that the devil, he comes and lies and he says these things that divide us are more important than they are. And it keeps us from being on one single focus, which is pursuing Jesus and making him known. But whenever we get together and we put aside any kind of differences and our main goal is to know Jesus and to make him known, that is of eternal significance that makes a difference, not just today, not just tomorrow, but forever and ever. 
in eternity. That's what Jesus prayed for on his last night of earth. You know it's significant whenever Jesus says something in the Bible because it's all covered in red. And, and if Jesus is saying something, we should listen up to what he's saying. But we should also take note of what Jesus would say on his very last night on earth. The night before he's about to get arrested. Like this is hours before he's going to get arrested to be crucified and die in our place for our sins. This is what Jesus is praying about. So we know it's important to him. So he starts in John chapter 17. There's an entire chapter of what Jesus is praying for. So 23 verses in, he's praying for this. He says, I am in them and you are in me. So that they may be made completely one. That the world may know that you have sent me. And have loved them as you have loved me. So John, he kind of says things in confusing ways. But this is what he's saying. He says, in other words, people will see Jesus and people will believe in Jesus because we are one. Because their church is one. The, the church is not divided. They have one single mission, and that is to know Jesus and to make him known. And we're not divided by small arguments. Jesus says, God, I, I pray that things might not defeat them, that things might not divide them, that they can be completely one so the world may know that you have sent me. Being one, the way that Jesus prayed for us to be, it's setting aside what makes us different and it's cheering on what makes us one, which is everybody now has equal access to God. Every single one of us now can come into the throne room of God boldly and present a request to him. So now we get into the really good news. Chapter, or verse 19 through 22. It says, so then you are no longer foreigner or strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and member of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. In him, you're also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. So Paul, he's, again, he's talking about the opposite about what he talked about at the beginning. He says, before you were excluded, you were without hope, but now these are all the benefits that you get from living a life that's in Christ. Before Christ, every single one of us, we were excluded. We had no home. We were foreigners. We were without hope and we were without God. But now we, once we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, once we put all of our hope and trust in him and not ourselves, we are now citizens and members of God's household and we are God's temple. And these, are, these benefits have so much more significance than what we put on them. Being a citizen and a member of God's household is important because that describes your relationship with God. That means that your relationship with him is secure. We see that in chapter 1 of Ephesians. It says God has adopted us as his children. We are adopted into his family. And once we do that, like our salvation and now is secure in him. God's not just going to say, I'm done with you. God's not just going to put you out of the family. Instead, he says, you are now a member of my household. You are a citizen of the kingdom of God. You are now a son and a daughter of God. No matter what your background is, no matter what you do for fun, no matter who you used to be, you're now one person in Christ. And the cool thing is that every single one of us, we are now on equal ground before God. Because we are all in the same boat. We are all citizens together. If this is your first night to ever say yes to Jesus and come to the faith, you are now at the same level as all these leaders in the back who have been following Jesus for years now. We all have equal access 
to God. But the most important part of this is that we are now God's temple. God's temple represents the place where God lives on earth. So before Jesus in the Old Testament, which is the part before the New Testament, see how clever that is, the old and new, the Old Testament was everything that happened before Jesus. It all preludes to Jesus. It's all about him, but it never mentions his name. The Old Testament, the, the way that God came and, and dwelt among us was in a temple. Because remember in the first ch- couple chapters of Genesis, God banishes Adam and Eve from his presence. And ever since then, the question is, how do we get back in there? God answered that question. He says, build me a temple. And so God, he, he, he came and dwelt among his people in Israel in the temple by, uh, by living in that place. Like that temple was the only place where God's presence was on earth. And there were so many rules and regulations to get in there. Like only one priest could get in there one time a year. And as after, he cleaned himself for an entire week. And if anyone ever tried to get into God's presence without that, if it wasn't that time of year, if you weren't that priest, or if you try to go in unclean, like you, the Bible says that you would literally die. Like, like Indiana Jones face melting kind of die. Like you couldn't go into the presence of God. But God, he decided to bring his presence on earth to show that he still cared for us and that he was going to make a way for all of us to get back to where we needed to go. And so God, he went a step further in the person of Jesus. We know that Jesus was God himself, but Jesus or God came in flesh and bone, and he came and lived among us. We see that in the first chapter of John. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says that God became flesh, and he dwelt among us. And that word dwelt means that he tabernacled, or, or he became a temple among us. So now God's presence wasn't just limited to a temple where you could only go one time a year, but now God's presence was walking on the earth. Like God says, I love them so much that I am going to become one of them and show them the way to live, and I'm going to become a sacrifice for them so that they can come into my presence forever. And then after Jesus died, who was God in the flesh, he went a million steps further after that. And he says, now that I have made this sacrifice for them, he is now making every single one of you his temple. So now we don't have to go to a temple to get to God's presence. We don't have to have Jesus here on earth to represent God's presence. But now the most significant thing happens is that what we have been longing for now lives inside of us already. That, that cool thing that Adam and Eve had, that, that God was walking with them in the Garden of Eden, that's nothing compared to what God is doing in us right now, that we are his temple. God's presence lives in us. I, I've lost my notes now. Where are we at? God did this to show us that wherever we are, that he cares about us and he loves you. And this is a lie, like this is something that the enemy, he doesn't want us to believe. He doesn't even want us to understand what this means. Because if the devil can make you believe that none of this is true, then he, he might win. And we know the devil can only attack you by your mind, by lies, by making you believe things that are not true. This is the devil, a lie from the devil. that He doesn't want you to know that everything you need is already inside of you because of Jesus. Just waiting to be unlocked. Because God's presence lives inside of us, that means that everything that God has for you can live inside of you. Like that joy that you need, that presence, that peace that you need, it lives inside of us because God lives inside of us. If the band will go ahead and come back. So I asked you the question at the very beginning, how many of you have ever been in a hopeless situation? 
I asked another, I wanted to ask another question, but I'm not going to make anyone raise their hand. How many of you ever felt like God is just so far away? It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter where I go. I come into a church like this, and sometimes he's there, sometimes he's not. But it just seems like God is just so far away. Like sometimes when I pray, like it just seems like the prayers just bounce off the ceiling. Like God doesn't hear me. Like I, I believe God's real, but sometimes I don't feel it, and sometimes I still doubt if he is or not. God does not have to be far away from you. God does not have to be far away. You do not have to live far away from God. You don't have to live a life that is looking for answers in all the wrong places that are just going to bring you harm instead of good. God promises to live inside of you. God promises to give you a new identity. God promises to give you a new life. And so you might be questioning, like, how does that happen? Because whenever I pray, it doesn't seem like it works. Whenever I pray, it doesn't seem like God hears me. So how do I get to that place? So I, if God really does love me, then why don't I ever feel that? If God wants to give me a new identity, then why do I still feel like I have to walk in guilt and shame? Why do I have to feel like I, I don't want anyone to know that what I actually believe or not? How do we find that out? It's if we seek him. God wants us to come to him. He says, if you seek after me, you will find me. And if you seek with me with all your whole, my, your whole heart, then I will be found by you. We're seeking after him. It's, God, I want you more than anything. If we turn from everything that wants to harm you and turn to God. And this is for those who maybe you feel like you don't even have a relationship with Jesus. How do we get that? It's, you want Jesus more than anything else. You want that peace... I'm not going to put it. If you want that hole in your heart filled with only God, to seek Him. You have to want Him. You have to want Him more than anything else. For the Christian, like those of you who would say, I am a Christian. I have accepted Jesus. I, like if I die tonight, I am going to heaven. It's still good to remember that God is with you. The enemy will lie to you. Even after you've been a Christian for years or months or, or decades, the enemy is going to lie to you. And if you are a Christian, he's going to say, you messed up. Like, God left you. Like, of course, he's not going to answer you anymore. You're not as good as you used to be. Like, you, you're, you were never good enough. But, but now you really messed up, and now God really has left you. Or any man might come and he might say that God has a plan for you. But he's just so confusing. Like, you'll never actually understand what it is. You just got to figure out on yourself You'll never figure it out. Or the enemy, he'll come and lie to you. And he says, God doesn't care about you anymore. God doesn't hear you. If you want true happiness, if you want acceptance, stop looking to God. He's not going to give it to you. Instead, look to the world. Look to the society. Look to the culture. Do what they're doing. That's the only way you're going to find it. And sometimes as Christians, we get tempted to look even in the wrong places for that. Those are lies. Those things are lies. The fact that you'll never be accepted, the fact that you'll never be loved, the fact that you'll never find happiness or acceptance in, uh, unless you look to the world, those are lies. God is with you. God does love you. God does care about you. God has already accepted you. God, whenever you choose to follow Jesus, God has chosen you before the foundation of the world to be in him. God hears your cries. When you cry at night, God hears your angers. When you're just so mad at the world, God hears your need for acceptance. God knows you. He knows you better than you know yourself. God knows everything about you. He knows your thoughts. He knows your feelings. He knows where you're going. God wants to be found by you. Remember him. Don't look to the world. 
Remember God. Seek after him. And he will make everything perfect in his perfect timing. I love what Andy said last week. And if you didn't hear it, go back and listen to the podcast. It was great. But he says, you don't know what God is doing right around the corner. Sometimes we give up right at the, in the fourth quarter. Whenever it seems like everything is about to go wrong, you don't know what's about to happen. Don't look to the world. Don't look to the wrong things. Wait on God. And everything will be perfect in his perfect timing. Remember him. Look towards him. There he head bowed and every eye closed. No one looking around for privacy's sake. If you've never said yes to Jesus before, like you feel like you're in that first group. You just don't feel like you have hope. You don't have anything to look forward to. You've never accepted Jesus. You've never officially made him your Lord and Savior. You never got to the place where I am a Christian. And I know I'm a Christian. And I know if I die tonight, I'm going to get to heaven because Jesus died for my, and saved me. If you've never gotten to that point of decision to where you know that and you pray that and that's in you. But you want to make that decision. You f- want to follow Jesus. You want to get into the presence of God. You want to make sure that heaven is for real. You want to make all that true for you. And you never made that official. If you want to make Jesus your Lord and Savior, I want you to raise your hand so that we can pray with you tonight.